Great. Thanks again, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome back to most of you. If you're visiting for the first time, welcome to you especially. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are in the book of Acts. So I forgot, if Peter, if you mentioned this or not, but usually you do. You didn't. Oh, you didn't. Wow. So we're in the book of Acts. Um, calling this series, A Church is Born. Uh, there's a lot of themes in Acts. And you've, if you've been here, if you've read it before, if you've been here, you've seen that already. But one of the big threads that we get in the book of Acts, uh, Acts just kind of means the Acts of the Holy Spirit, Acts of the Church, and what God is doing, Jesus continues to do after his death and resurrection and after his ascension by the Holy Spirit and how he helps the gospel to spread like brush fire around the ancient world, around the Roman Empire and, and even beyond. So um, we're starting to get to that point of the book now where Jesus is um, kind of off the scene physically. He's still very present, of course, by the Spirit. He's the main character. But we're at that point now where the church has just been born through the preaching and reception of the gospel by thousands of Jews at their annual Pentecost festival. And a private and public gathering is beginning. So a couple weeks ago, before Christmas, we, we finished, uh, we were in chapter 3. Uh, actually, before that. So in chapter 2, we see how private and public gathering are beginning, as well as evangelistic efforts of various kinds. And this is key because it's the context for today's passage in chapter 4. So uh, one of which was one of these evangelistic exercises or efforts was when Peter and John healed a paralytic who was paralyzed from birth. Rather, Jesus did through them, but these two men healed him. Then they preached the gospel to the gathered crowd. So uh, there was this guy outside the temple courts, and he was crying out for money, and they, don't, they say, we don't have any money, but what we have, we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And he does instantly, and leaps around, bounds around, and praises God. And it's this really cool miracle and scene. But this, there's this crowd that gathers, and Peter uh, and John, but Peter's there doing the, the speaking primarily, he preaches the gospel. So he, he uses the, the healing, the physical healing, as a context for preaching about the forgiveness of sins. Basically saying, all of you are spiritually crippled like this man used to be physically. And if you believe that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead, you will leap around and bound around spiritually as well and be forgiven of your sins and you have a place at the table of God and you will be saved. That's the content essentially of his sermon. There's a lot more to that um, in terms of how he does that, but that was a couple of weeks ago we, uh, we looked at that. Now, that whole miracle and, and sermon actually He's still preaching here in Acts 4 when all the events of Acts 4 start to happen, which we'll see here in just a second. But that whole thing serves as the context for today's passage. So not just the speaking, but the healing and, and uh, this question is going to come up about by what power and in whose name did you do this? And, and this annoyance uh, from the high priests and the captain of the temple, it says here in verse 1. So, so some Jewish, just think this, some Jewish religious leaders, and there, some of them are named here actually by name, hear about this and are curious, but they're more upset. They're annoyed that this healing took place and they're annoyed that the name of Jesus is continuing to be name-dropped. They thought they crucified the guy and killed him. They thought they squelched it, but there's still preaching and teaching happening in his name. And the resurrection of the dead, the, the fact of it, the history of it, the theology of it is kind of the meat of this message. So that's an annoyance to them as well. So so pick up really where we left off then a few weeks ago before Christmas in the middle of December when we looked at chapter 3, all of chapter 3. Today we're in Acts 4, 1 to 22. And the content essentially is Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples who become these apostles or kind of early church pastors from the first uh, church in Jerusalem are put on trial. Uh, so let's read in full. Acts 4, 1 to 22. This will be uh, entirely here on, um, on screen. So verse 1. And as they... Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody, custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And again, he's paralyzed from birth, which is why his age is mentioned here. To heighten the, heighten the, the miracle. All right, so today what we're going to do is basically just talk through this passage. There's a lot of interesting things going on. I have three main sections. Uh, if you'd like to take notes, it's in your sermon insert in the worship folders. But basically looking at this idea of, of this perceived threat on the part of the, the priests and the Sadducees, these Jewish religious uh, teacher types. And then Peter and John's defense, essentially. And then this kind of final response of things that these religious rulers who are antagonistic towards Christianity say at the end. And all along, we learn a lot about the gospel, all kinds of things, actually, like maybe how to apologetically defend the faith a little bit, the nature of disbelief, why they're annoyed over this. We'll actually park there for a while and start there in just a second here because it comes up in verse 1. But why that's the case at all, but then all along, we're learning a lot about the nature of grace and the gospel. There's some pretty famous verses, actually, when it comes to Acts in here that you may have heard referenced or just read kind of alone uh, before because they're just great verses that summarize the nature of the gospel, the exclusivity of Christ, uh, the fact that these men were just Jewish. They were a couple of Jewish fishermen who are basically intellectually going toe-to-toe and actually rising above these very educated uh, religious uh, lawyer types and teacher types. And so it's really this kind of like flip and there's a lot of dramatic irony happening here too with uh, how that all transpires. And to the point where these people are actually, the people doing the triene are actually astonished, it says as well, at the uneducated yet bold, uh, bold nature of these, these two guys. So really interesting stuff. I love that this stuff's in the Bible. If you've never mentioned, never read this stuff before or heard it kind of taught on, it's, it's, maybe this will be very helpful for you in terms of what is Christianity all about? What's the bullseye? What do we really go all in on and what do we not? But the fact that you had this initial kind of uh, toe-to-toe, you know, there's these skeptics and um, these people who are antagonistic towards the faith and people that are bothered by it interacting with these first Jewish Christians. Like, it's really interesting that we have this history written down, but it's also theology, as it always is. So, All right, so with that said, let's dive right into this first section, the perceived threat. So perceived on the part of the Sadducees, who are kind of like this... Um, this Jewish religious leader kind of sect or group. Uh, the Pharisees are another camp, and then the high priests uh, and the priestly kind of group is sort of a third, but they all form this Sanhedrin council thing. In fact, some of your uh, translations mention Sanhedrin. The ESV just mentions the council, but that was just kind of a form or kind of this formal um, judiciary group of sorts, uh, theologically and otherwise, uh, that existed in the first century. So, but anyway, uh, the perceived threat on, on their side of things. So again, verse 1 says, as they, Peter and John, were speaking, preaching the gospel to the people and talking about what had just happened, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so, again, verse 2, I want, I want to just kind of park on that, on that phrase that, of greatly annoyed here for a second because it's a great, some of your translations I think say disturbed or something, so it can mean a lot of things, but when you hear greatly annoyed, this is clearly not meaning like cordial disagreement or something, right? This is not like, hey, let's just kind of talk this out, tell us more. They're, they're greatly annoyed. They, these people are threatened by the preaching of Jesus and threatened by the mention of resurrection. It's kind of a, there's something personal being poked at here. And so they, they go and so speak, right, and kind of poke back and try to squelch this out and figure out what's going on. But Jesus and his resurrection is a kind of threat to these people. People often say that Jesus came to threaten the system. We talk those ways sometimes in New Testament theology. It's kind of a, 
uh, obscure phrase, but what we mean by that or should mean by that when we say that Jesus came to threaten the system is not the political system. Jesus didn't come to overthrow Rome. It's very clear with how he teaches and what he doesn't do and what the early church doesn't do actually here in the book of Acts. He did not come to be a political savior and overthrow Rome and in that way to challenge the system. But he did come to be a threat to religious conservatism and and to a religious kind of high view of the self and to a a non-faith-filled Old Testament way of thinking and living. And so remember, back in Mark 2, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, I think, as well, um, in Mark 2, and actually I think Luke and Matthew have a version of this as well, but in Mark 2, Jesus says, early on in his ministry, he is like new wine that people need to receive with new wineskins of the heart. And so the idea is that if, you're, if your heart's like an old wineskin, the new thing that Jesus came to do in contrast, the old way, the old system, the Old Testament, it will burst the skin because the old skin's already kind of formed around the... the wine that was previously in it. And so we have to have new wineskins to receive the new thing, the new teachings, the new thing that Jesus is coming to kind of embody and do. And so this then, with all that in mind, this is a great example, Acts 4, 1 to 22, a great example of people who are not doing that, who don't have new wineskins in the heart, of the heart. And, and to understand their annoyance and offense here, it helps to try to picture the scene and picture yourself as like a first century Jewish leader, which is like impossible because none of us are, but, but you can try and think about what did they just experience? What did they just see with the healing of this, of this uh, paralyzed man? And how and in what sense is that a threat to them? And so picture it this way. As this man, going back, going back to chapter 3, as this paralyzed man was being healed, and remember where it was, outside the temple, there were likely many Sadducees and priests and Pharisees and religious types actively keeping Old Testament law actively offering sacrifices inside the temple, actively observing the Ten Commandments, and many other things like that. And this great work of God, this healing, happens apart from all of that, aside from it, almost in spite of it. And so for them to hear then about a God who is, is active in this way, is saving sinners, is healing cripples, and, and addressing and kind of saving and being kind to people who are not actively keeping the law like they were, outside the temple courts, was clearly a threat and clearly greatly offensive. And in that way, they are annoyed and bothered. It's, it's poking at their narrative. It doesn't fit in, the, in their box. And so questions like, why didn't God do that for me, may have filled their mind. Or why didn't he even do it around me when I was serving tirelessly in the temple and being so amazing in there? Aren't I a better person than he, referring to the cripple? Or why isn't God validating all that I'm doing for him? I thought the glory of God was supposed to descend on this temple proper, this building. Why are all these amazing things happening outside of it now? All of this is new wine type things. And it was, it was offensive, it was a challenge, it was a threat. Even though the Old Testament looked ahead to it and predicted it tirelessly, many missed it. And instead were focusing more on what they had to contribute and with the works of their hands uh, rather than looking for the Messiah in the way that the Bible uh, predicted he would be. So this is not then an issue of, in terms of the tension here on trial, with this trial. This is not just an issue of whether or not Jesus is alive. It is that. But it's about a new kind of work of God that is coming on the heels of a testament or a covenant, the Old Covenant or Old Testament, built upon, in part, human efforts or law-keeping, or the statement like in Leviticus 18.5, I think it says, do this, do these things, and then you will live. Do the laws, and then you will live. On the heels of that, this healing takes place outside of it or apart from it, outside the temple courts. And so now this new work bypasses those kinds of things, circumvents those kinds of things, and exemplifies itself outside the temple courts so that Jesus would be the focus not our sacrifices, not our law-keeping, not our good works. That's why they're annoyed, as it would annoy anybody. It doesn't fit with their narrative. And, and if true, if this whole Jesus thing is true, kind of from their perspective for a second, if this whole Jesus thing is true, it will overturn all they've worked for up to this point in their life, and it will level the playing field. No longer will they be looked up to. 
And this is all a part of our story too. So this is happening historically and theologically. We can learn from this, but this is all a part of our story too, as if we're kind of like this Jewish council in a way. They're a picture of us, wherever we're, we, are, we are spiritually, so Christian or not. The gospel is the best news in the universe, but it's so not about us. And, and so it humbles, it brings us low, but it infuses us with joy at the exact same time. This is like the proper response to the gospel, that we won't always feel in perfect balance every day. That's not the point. But in general, the response should be some kind of annoyance. If we're in any way thinking even a little bit highly of ourselves, it should annoy and offend and bother because it's so much not about us and so much not acknowledging the works of our hands and so much about instead God. But then it should, with that said, greatly infuse joy and greatly encourage us because it says right alongside that, but this is how much you're loved. The, the God who made you, who breathed you and spoke you into existence sent his son to die in your place and that's the only way to be saved. And so incredible joy and incredible humility at the, at the exact same time. Almost like it moves us from the works of our hands to a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Just like the Bible itself moves narratively from stone-cold tablets of law that have the Ten Commandments on them to this place now of staring into an empty tomb, seeing no body, and considering what that means for our lives. Which is really a movement away from us to Jesus. And again, this is a good thing, but, but for those, whether that's us or whether it's these, these, um, this Jewish tribunal here in the first century, for those who abuse the purpose of the law and don't see it so much as a pointer to our need for a savior outside of ourselves, which is what it was supposed to be doing, but instead use it to puff themselves up, the gospel becomes quite offensive because it doesn't validate our goodness. The gospel doesn't flatter or validate our goodness. Instead, it celebrates and makes famous Jesus. And in that says, loved, not good, like Jesus says, a lot in his ministry actually, you who are evil, are loved, or things like, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God, that, that whole teaching. He calls people out, and uh, not to be a jerk, he's, he's Jesus, you know, but, he, he, but to be truthful, and to say, you need to know this about yourself, and know how bad things are, that you're not just kind of like imperfect, you're dead spiritually, or like he says to actually other Sadducees and Pharisees at that one point, when he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of rotting flesh and decaying bones. That is who you are. It's like, wow, thanks. You know, but I'll consider that, right? But that's basically what the gospel brings to us and sort of slides across the table. We have to say, do we believe we're that bad? If we're just, oh, everyone's, no one's perfect, right? No, no, you don't understand. I'm like a rotting corpse spiritually. And so I need one to, to kind of raid my tomb and call into it like he did for Lazarus and say, Chris, come out or else I have no hope. I mean, do we... Is that the gospel for us or not, right? Is that our narrative or not? And I think that's what we're seeing here, kind of the backdrop here to this is, is all, of, all of that. So all this is a good thing, but for those who think highly of themselves, it's, uh, it's quite offensive, all right? So the perceived threat is, is that, and we learn some things about the nature of the gospel, how the story's kind of progressing to a New Testament and how it's all about grace, not works, and we learn some things here, uh, at least by way of impl implication. So, the second thing, though, is Peter's, Peter's testimony and John's testimony. So they're kind of their, their, their defense here. And I'll bring you back to chapter 1 really quick. Remember when Jesus said in chapter 1, you'll be witnesses? Remember that? You'll be witnesses to the ends of the earth? They're doing the exact, that exact thing here, right? They're in a courtroom setting, and they are testifying to what they had seen and heard. Like, Jesus knows the future, like newsflash, right? But Jesus knows the future, and that's exactly what's happening. They are actually being textbook witnesses and testifiers here to what they had seen and heard. Not an idea, but what they had seen and heard with their eyes and their ears and touched with their hands. Jesus is an historical Jesus. He really lived. He really died. He really rose. All right? And then in verse 7, again, let me read this again. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, 
By him, this man is standing before you well. All right, so there's a ton going on here, but what I want to focus on today is the kind of the content of their defense. So look what they say, kind of what they don't say as well. We'll talk about that, but what they say and how they say it. They start by saying, essentially, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that it's by the name of Jesus this man is healed, whom you crucified and God raised up. All right, so super easy, dust statement question here, but who's the hero in the sermon? Who's the hero in the defense? Clearly Jesus, right? And they go right there. They zoom right in. So, so it's like there's no chance for anybody to say, nice job, Peter and John. That's well played. Well played of that healing, right? Like nothing. No room for that. They say, if this is what you're asking, let it be very clear, we did nothing. Nothing. Angels say it. Christians say it. Like the whole, it's like all the cosmos should say this. We brought nothing to the table. We wouldn't exist without God saying to us, exist. We bring nothing. It's this textbook example of how we should speak and live and think and sing and come to church if you're a Christian with this posture. Every Sunday, every day, every moment. We didn't do this. This is how we talk about our salvation, right? We, I didn't do this, or we should. I didn't do this. I did, I did nothing to deserve this. This is how they're talking about a healing, but it applies to how we talk about everything, right? We could fill in the blank. We didn't do it. Jesus gets the fame. Jesus gets the credit. All right, then later they add, and it's not on this, in this paragraph here, but after this, he quotes Psalm 118.22, or alludes to it. He says, He, Jesus, was the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And so what he's saying here is the rejected Jesus, the crucified Jesus, became the foundation of a new type of temple and building, which is the church. Which again, this is a whole other sermon, but it would, be huge, it would be new, new wine, but offensive for some of these Jews to hear. Like, what do you mean? This, is, this has never been the way we've operated before, and this is not where kind of our present hope is. It's in this physical structure, this temple that was destroyed, but Herod the Great helped rebuild. That's amazing, isn't it? And now you're saying this gathering of people, these Christians, are actually where God's going to descend and pour out his glory and dwell and be? Like, that's the true temple? That's what God cares about now? And, and so, to, again, to, to kind of name drop Jesus here and cornerstone and quote or allude to Psalm 118, which these Jewish teachers knew very well, uh, would have been hard for them, uh, to put it mildly, to receive that. So, but he highlights the crucifixion. And that's what I want you to, to really see here, especially if you weren't here mid-December when we looked at chapter 3, uh, the kind of the sister compare, uh, passage to this one, the, the comparative one, the, the predecessor one. What I want us to go back to is something we highlighted there, and that was physical healing pointed to spiritual healing. Remember this whole, the whole issue, how Jesus does this in Mark 2 and in Luke 5, and how it's clear there that he uses healings to sort of become this context for talking about spiritual healing, how it's the physical that gives way to the spiritual. The physical is not unimportant, but it's less important, and how he, it leads him to preaching the gospel, and how, again, I mentioned this before to start the sermon, but how Peter, when a crowd gathers to say, what happened, this 40-plus-year-old guy who's never been able to walk, now he's, now he's jumping hurdles? Like, what the heck? Like he says, doesn't heal one more person physically, but he says, if you believe in Jesus, that he rose from the dead, you'll be saved from your sins. You know, it's kind of like, whoa, that's great, but can I also get healed of my paralysis? And they don't do it because it's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. And so it's the same idea here. You see Peter kind of go back all in on that because he's on, they're on trial for healing a paralytic, but he doesn't really talk about it that much. Isn't that interesting? Like, there's no kind of analysis here about sort of, the, there's no medical kind of inquiry or there's no biological language or, yeah, this is kind of how we did it or how Jesus did it. The cripple is sort of, the paralytic kind of falls to the background and Jesus instantly says, if you're asking about this healing, let me tell you that Jesus died on a cross. Let me tell you that he rose again. And let me tell you that it's in his name that this man stands before you healed. See how he moves to death and resurrection? It's the same thing as two weeks ago to the crowd it's the same thing here to this Jewish council. He moves from the physical to the spiritual. So yet again, 
the healing is a secondary, dialed-up context for them to talk about Jesus' death and resurrection. That's why it happened. And our salvation, too, that's wrapped up in Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, with this whole way of thinking in mind, physical to spiritual, Acts 4, 1-22 is this, essentially, this really cool picture of a couple of guys, Peter and John, standing next to a cripple who's essentially, spiritually speaking, a, a, a healed a convert to Christianity, a, a healed spiritual cripple, and then saying this, it's by the name of Jesus Christ that this person stands before you saved. That's the parallel, right? Because they're saying it's by the name of Jesus Christ and in his power that this man stands before you healed, but if the physical is sort of a, an image of the spiritual, then it's basically the same thing as saying it's by the name and power of Jesus Christ that anybody stands before anybody else in a state of being converted or healed spiritually from their sins. Does that make sense? It's so important. I mean, at the end of the day, think about this question if, if you're a Christian in the room. Why are we Christians at all? Why are you a Christian? Has anybody ever asked you that? Why are you a Christian? Is it because of an evangelist or a pastor or a missionary or a book or a conference or a church service or something you read in the Bible about the gospel? What did God use? I mean, at the end of the day, yes, all of those are a part of it, for sure. God-ordained God means by which you became a Christian. But it's not the ultimate behind-the-curtains reason. All of us are Christians because Jesus chose to save us and chose to heal us. That's what this is saying. In other words, it's by the name and power of Jesus Christ that you and I are saved. Jesus died and rose, and now his Holy Spirit came to us to soften us to that message and to create the light of belief in our dark hearts. Read um, 2 Corinthians uh, 4, 1-6, to I think it is. It talks about how God is basically recreating, and in a secondary sense, he's saying, let there be light into our sin darkened souls. Just like in the beginning when he said, let there be light, he's saying that again through the gospel. It's only then that we can receive it. It's only then that we can understand. It's only then that we can truly say that I want, I want that. It matters to me. So this is what they're doing. And, and I think, so this is, this is a great, this is a bit of a sidebar, but I think this passage is, is a bit of a, a caution. It's a cautionary thing for us because we need to be careful that our testimonies don't make us or someone else famous, but make Jesus famous. It's a, not that this is a, an exact verbatim paradigm for how we talk about why we're saved or someone asks us about our faith, like we have to copy this word for word, but I do think it should speak to it. And I think that if we don't speak this way, if we speak in a way that's contrary to it, then it should, that should startle us a bit. That should catch us a little bit in our tracks and say, how can I sound a bit more like the Bible or the apostles? How can I make Jesus more famous? How can if someone asks me, why am I a Christian? There's a lot of things we can say to that. We all have our own sort of unique stories, but this is what's true for all of us that's not unique. This is common to all of us. We are saved because at the end of the day, Jesus came to me and he revealed himself to me and he softened my heart and he saved me and I hated him, but then he made me love him and worship him because I, I got caught up in what he did for me and he wooed me to himself and he said when I was a cripple on the side of the road asking for money, not even knowing which way it was up, not even knowing what I should be even asking for, he said, this is what I have for you. Stand up and walk away from your sins and death in my name. That's how much I love you. That's what happened. And if that is, that's not a part of, and that is, so on one level, Christian, that is a part of your story. Be encouraged. That's how much Jesus loves you. You didn't figure out the gospel arithmetic. Like Jesus revealed himself, you softened your heart, said let there be light into your heart. So now that it's by the power of and in the name of Jesus Christ that we stand converted. Isn't that great? Make that a part of your story. Share that with someone. Share it with your kids, your spouse, your friends, your community group. People aren't Christians yet because we didn't find him. He found us. It's by his power that, that we are, are saved alone. Praise be to God. All right, let's move on to the third piece here, the religious ruler's response. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. 
and they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. All right, this is um, such a good verse. I almost want to do this next week as uh, like, or I'm not preaching next week, whenever I preach again, as its own sermon, but I'm not. But a few things, though. Uh, this, is, um, this is one of those showing the gospel passages versus saying the gospel clearly. This shows it. It's because it screams grace, right? Uh, if we ask the question, how does verse 13 shed light on how we're saved? The answer is, it's not by intelligence or being special or even being good that we're saved, but by what? By being with Jesus, right? That's it. The opposite of this passage would be something like this. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were very educated, morally upright, special men, it made sense to them. And they recognized that they had served night and day in the temple courts and were uh, law-filled, very upright people or something like that. That would be the opposite. But it doesn't say it. This is the opposite. Probably why it's annoying to these people who think it should say that. It, It broke, the fact that grace breaks our it's not logical. It's unfair. Grace is unfair. And so when we look at churches, and like 1 Corinthians 1 talks about this, it's the same argument from a different angle, but the Apostle Paul says, look around your, your church, Corinthians. Look how normal so, so many of you are. Look how unschooled many of you are. Look how blue-collar many of you are. If the gospel was about works, it would be the most intelligent, the best-looking, the richest, the strongest, those who have been to school the longest. It would be all of them who would be saved. And then everyone else will be outside. But it's not that. It's a mix. There are very smart people who are saved, but there are also very, very unintelligent, unschooled people who, who are. There are people of all kinds of professions. And a lot of times, actually, it's people who are on the other side of the scale, the blue-collar side, the not-so-great side, that are chosen to lead in churches to show that it must be by grace we're saved and not by works. Otherwise, this person wouldn't be leading because they're not the obvious choice. That's like 1 Corinthians 1 in a paragraph, but it's better if you just read it yourself, so go and read it. But that's basically what he's saying, and that's what's being shown here as well. They're astonished. It doesn't make sense because they're thinking, they're thinking as though it's by works, and though if it's by works, these, guys, these Jewish fishermen shouldn't be there with boldness, going toe-to-toe with them intellectually and actually talking them down and kind of winning the argument. You see how that's going? They're they're, they're works-based individuals, so it breaks their mold. Grace-based people, though, would look at this and say, oh, it makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. God chooses the unlikely to show that it's about him being impartial to sinners. It's not about people finding their way to him. It's about God finding his way to us and saving us by grace, just because he loves us. This is our story, too, guys. If, you know, let me ask you here, actually, off of this, does it astonish you that you're saved at all? I'm borrowing from the, the Jewish leader's words here, or Luke's words, but does it astonish you that you're saved at all? Does it just blow your mind? Does it knock you out of your chair? And that doesn't mean, like, it actually has to knock you out of your chair if you're going to be, oh my gosh, I'm way off. I'm just saying, like, does it, does it blow your mind? If it doesn't, it's possible that you have too high a view of yourself and too little of Jesus. These non-Christian men were astonished at the work of the gospel in ordinary, unworthy, common people's lives. Just another way to look at it here. Common people's lives. It showed us to, especially as we think of ourselves in this light. So don't read this and, oh yeah, man, I know a very unschooled person. And yeah, that's right, that's great, they're saved. Like, no, think of yourself. And a lot of you are super smart. So we live in a very schooled, academic, intelligent city. So... that's great. It's not like a handicap, but it's just like in the grand scheme of things, though, spiritually speaking, all of us are unschooled. All of us are unintelligent. All of us are common. None of us are special, spiritually speaking, and that's why we need Jesus. And so we should be astonished, looking at ourselves, that we're saved at all. Astonished. Because it's by grace we're saved, not by our works. So stand amazed. All right, then it keeps going. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they commanded them to leave, though, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, they say at the end. So hang on that phrase for a second. They, they cannot deny it. So a couple quick things here. First of all, to Christians and those of you who are not yet Christians alike, um, never think this phrase here. Never think that, man, if I just saw a miracle like in Acts 3 happen before my eyes, 
I believe. Like, if you think that, that's a very natural thing to think, and it's not like it's, you know, a billion miles away from, like, you know, logic, or it's not sin or anything either, but it's just like, don't think that, because look what's happening here. Many saw it, but explained it away rationally. People, like, saw with their eyes, they saw this guy healed, and these people are, they can't deny that it happened, right? And they're suppressing it. They're keeping it at bay, and it's not enough to make them Christian. Is that interesting? There's so much to say there. I'm not going to make it a part of today's sermon, but, but I just think that they, the fact that they didn't in, let the healing inform or, in Jesus' name, inform or challenge their worldview is shocking. And so this, this fits with, like, things that Jesus teaches on what's the true sign, you know, when Jesus says, like, you all, all, your generation asks for all these signs and I'm not going to give you any. What I am going to give you, though, is this one sign, the sign of Jonah, which is the sign of my death and resurrection. That's the sign you need. And so, like, when we think, oh, man, if I could just see a miracle, um, it's, not, it's not enough. You know, some of you have been there where you're like, yeah, I've asked for that, I've seen it, and it still hasn't been enough. Part of my story is that. People in our church have that story. It's great. Um, what we need is Jesus to invade our heart. All right, it's kind of a sidebar. But building off of that, though, and further, this is a good example of the true nature of disbelief. And so I'm not going to define disbelief totally here. It's not the point. I just want to look at what this passage is saying about what it's looking like that these people are disbelieving the gospel or disbelieving in the power of Jesus and the healing. How, how is that looking? What does it mean? What I mean by this is, it's not that there's this huge lack of evidence to support the fact that Christianity is true, but it's that people don't want it to be true. Does that make sense? It's not there's this huge like, pool of lack of evidence to support the fact that Christianity is true, but it's that we don't want it to be. So it's suppressed. Like Romans 1 says, we, we have, speaking of all of humanity, we suppress the truth, which suppress means to hold back with force. We suppress the fact, we hold back the fact that it's all about God and not about us. The gospel demands things. It challenges, like we talked about before, this is why they're annoyed. Like, so think of all that idea of annoyance and, and all that we talked about here. That's, so we, we hold back, the truth. we don't want it to be true because of what it's going to mean in part. About, about us, even though it's the best news in the universe. We, we miss that. So, for example, then, t- today, and this is true here in Acts 4, but, but today, no one can technically deny the resurrection. I'm using this word deny because it's here in Acts 4, but no one can technically deny the resurrection. No one can prove it didn't happen. In fact, the, the evidence points overwhelmingly to it actually happening. For why else are we standing here as a church, saved, healed, not crippled anymore spiritually, lives changed, worshiping Jesus when before we hated him. Oh, and where's Jesus' body again, if he's still in fact dead? I mean, the list, the list goes on. But really, though, what we're seeing here is a kind of an early glimpse or, or a version of the where there's smoke, there's fire argument in Acts 4. A, a version of the where there's smoke, there's fire argument. In other words, if a paralytic was healed or kind of resurrected, raised up, uh, if you remember that from, from Acts 3, raised up or healed in the name of Jesus, if God-haters become God-worshippers at the snap of a finger overnight inexplicably, if these common unschooled men speak with such boldness and later, if by preaching this gospel, these apostles are tortured to death and don't recant, and even further, after all of them die, Christianity flourishes. It doesn't die out with the apostles, but it flourishes after their death. Trace all of that backwards. The smoke of all of those things must mean that the fire of Jesus' resurrection happened. And there are many other arguments for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The point of today is not to talk about those. What I want us to see today is that the religious rulers in Acts 4 that disbelief for them is in part suppression of the truth and not wanting something to be true. It's sort of like uh, staring at the sun with our eyeballs, starting to go blind because it's right there, like burning our eyeballs out of our sockets, and still saying, yeah, but is the sun really there? It could be argued that it's not there, and the the eyeballs are melting out of our... Sorry, it's kind of gross, but... Anyway, it's kind of like, yeah, but is the sun really there? It could be argued, you know, like that, that the whole kind of like the philosophies of our day, right? Like, is it really there? Let's, let's, let's sort of like argue for how it can't like actually be there, even though it's like 
burning my skin. All right, anyway, it's sort of like that. The Pharisees, staring at a miraculously healed man, can't deny it, and also, by the way, unable to find Jesus' body, and they would have loved to have found it, right? It would have squelched all of this. I mean, done. Unable to find Jesus' body, can't deny either, but they suppress the truth anyway. The good news here is this is exactly what Jesus saves us from. If it was left to our own intellectual devices and philosophical certainty, no one would be saved. But if Jesus is at work softening hearts and affirming that these things were, quote, seen and heard by many people, that Jesus died a public death and rose a public resurrection and ascended publicly as people were watching him ascend, and if he's stronger than our ability to suppress truth, isn't that great news? If he's stronger than our ability to suppress truth, and instead, if the truth invades our hearts uninvited, then we have all the hope in the world. And so that our intellectual ascription to things like where there's smoke, there's fire, and all that we talked about there, and the Bible's teachings itself on Jesus' death and resurrection and what it says about the gospel and the importance of belief and trust in that, if our intellectual ascription to all of that is a part of it, and it is, then we affirm that they are married and wedded, those things, to the work of the Spirit, making those things matter and overcoming our suppression of the truth of those things and overcoming our darkened hearts, as we also talked about before. That's the idea. There are things to intellectually ascribe to, but what's happening here in Acts and what's happened for all of us who are, who are saved, who are Christians, is that the Holy Spirit has said, let there be light. And let those things matter. And may the gospel make sense. And may it not be a mystery or a parable anymore. And, and the veil comes up and we can see. And until God does that, nothing's created, nothing's made, nothing's saved, nothing's cleansed, nothing's changed. Because when does that happen biblically without God speaking and saying, let it be so? Is there an example? There isn't. When God creates and saves, it's always by him intending it and speaking it into existence because it's by grace we're saved, not by us groping around in the darkness as like zombie corpses trying to finger our way out of our own tomb. Like, just, that's just not the story. The story is instead of Jesus uh, raiding it and calling our names. All right, so here, here's the gospel then according to Acts 4. We'll end uh, a few things here. Um, verse 21 And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. So we ask, where is the gospel? And I mean the gospel, so the, the, the death and resurrection, but like the, the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus, the fact that he died for us, where is that sort of talked about here? Because there's, there's a lot of this not really explicitly there, right? Even when the way Peter preaches, like he talks about in the name and by the power of Jesus, and it's certainly there, but not like there, there. It's not clearly there. But where is it spiritually and allegorically here? And I think it's in verse 21. And you might think that's a really strange verse. There's no gospel there at all. Uh, but it, what helps is when we compare this to Mark 15, 15. So contrast it to Mark 15, 15, which is when Jesus was on trial as well. Just like Peter and John are in trial in Acts 4, it says, Pilate, the Roman governor of that province where Jesus was on trial, though finding no fault in Jesus and wanting to set him free, wishing to satisfy the people, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And so the, the connection here is that, in, in, and the point is, um, these, these, these passages are like, again, uh, comparative passages. There's a comparison and a marked contrast so that we would think about the connection and see what's different and make a gospel application from it. And so what I mean by that is, in Mark, Pilate was pressured to crucify Jesus and, and let Barabbas, this convicted criminal, go. He was pressured to crucify Jesus because of the people and the crowds there. In Acts, it's the same thing, but, but at the same time, the complete opposite. In Acts, the priests were pressured to let Peter and John go because of the people. Both are trials, but both have different, different uh, end results and, and, con and opposite ones. You see that? How the one moves to the other? 
there is a comparison and a contrast we're supposed to see and say, wow, these passages sound alike, but there's also a notable difference. And in that difference is the gospel. It's a progression from the one to the other. And here's the gospel. Jesus was crucified and we were let go. Jesus wasn't let go during his trial. He was tortured to death for us in love so that we can be, to quote from Acts 4, let go and not punished. See, the language of Acts 4, this is exactly what the Bible says is the gospel for weak and wounded sinners like us. Jesus was not let go. We were let go like Peter and John. This doesn't mean that Christians never suffer for the gospel. We see this, we'll see quite the opposite actually in Acts very shortly. But it means that sometimes we have two stories like this in the Bible that show a comparison and a marked contrast. And the contrast is meant to remind us of Jesus, that he was handed over for us and we are let go. And because of Jesus, there is, quote, no way to punish us. Like Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, because of what Jesus did, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what's interesting about Acts 4 then is unbeknownst to the tribunal, unbeknownst to the council, the religious rulers are simply playing a part in God's greater story of salvation. By crucifying Jesus and now releasing the apostles, they're helping to tell the story of salvation and substitutionary love. In Christ, he was put on trial for you. In Christ, he was punished. In Christ, he went to the gallows, so to speak, but to the crucifix. In Christ, he died among criminals. But in Christ, we're let go and we're spared from all of that. Does that make sense? See, we're supposed to see these connections. And in this, then, the gospel is it's not spoken, but it's shown. It's the same story. Two trials, two pressures from people, but two different results. And the first one is about Jesus not being let go. The second one is about you being freed. This is the nature of the gospel. There is no other bullseye. Jesus' substitutionary death, dying in our place for us, going through a trial, being judged, being convicted, dying for our sins, though not his, because he was perfect. But then later in the story, us, like Peter and John, being released. It's beautiful. This is, this is, this is what we need to know to be saved. This is, what, this is what we need to celebrate. This is what we sing, Right? This is the bullseye of, of our faith. In Christ, you guys, I don't know where all of you are spiritually today. Most of you are Christians, but Christian, hear this. If you're not a Christian yet, hear this. What this is saying, what Acts 4 is showing, is that in Christ there is no punishment, fear, consequence, or guilt anymore. The Bible is chock full of trial and courtroom and verdict and, and guilt language as it pertains to Jesus who dies in our place so that we wouldn't have to fear that anymore. The future for us isn't consequence for our sins or fear of some kind of trial. At the very end, it will be, is our name written in the book of life? Not in the book of deeds or what you've done. You guys read that in Revelation before? There's two books, remember in the end? There's a book of deeds, what you've done. Those will be opened and everyone's judged and everyone goes to hell. So don't be in that book. Uh, our deeds are, but the point is, there's a second book. It's one of those things where you're like, oh my gosh, thank you, there's a second book. There's two books on the shelf, pull the other one off, please, you know. But the other, the other book is the Lamb's Book of Life, which is mentioned multiple times in the book of Revelation, the Lamb's Book of Life, and in that book, there's not deeds, but what? Names. Not what you've done, but whether or not you believe that Jesus is your Savior or not. That's it. Your name, not your works. Your name, not your deeds. Your name, not laws. Your name, not your trophies. See, it's not about a trial at the end. Jesus went to trial for us and was convicted for us as a substitute. Isn't that amazing? This should liberate us. The Bible is, see, in Christ there's no punishment. There's just exodus. There's just liberation. There's just freedom. There's just joy. And it's that act of grace alone that we're saved by. And I'll, I'll quote um, Acts 4.12 here to stop, or to end again, which says, there is no salvation in any other name under heaven, right? Like when Peter says that, 
Acts 4.12. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He, he is the most inclusive Savior. He, he widens his arms to all who would come to him. All who are weary and burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. And yet he is the most exclusive Savior at the same time, saying that I'm not showing you multiple doors that by which you may enter. He's saying, I am the only door in John 10. I'm the only gate. I am the only way to the Father. I am the only way by which men and women can be saved. That's it. He is God's olive branch. He is God's peace offering. He is God's substitute. He is God's lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he became human so he could die for us in our place. That's why Christmas is so important and beautiful, the incarnation. If he didn't become human, he couldn't die for us and advocate for us. But he became human so he could die as a human for us. And become a rock or a plant or an animal to die for those. He became human to die for us and to redeem us. Or an angel to die for angels. He became a human to die for us. And it's by that act of grace, there's no other name, no other way, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so the call here in Acts 4, which it's interesting, everything in the Bible is about the gospel. This passage is too. It doesn't clearly say it, but it shows it. The point of Acts 4 1 to 22, is believe in the gospel and you will be saved. That's what it means. There's no imperative in the book, or in, in the chapter, in the section. There's nothing to do, but there's simply a Jesus to savor and to rest in and to believe in. And to see is this marked kind of contrast with what Peter and John are experiencing. We are like Barabbas, the criminal let go when we shouldn't have been. We are like Peter and John, let go, because before that, Pilate didn't let Jesus go. Isn't that amazing, guys? This is the gospel. So let's, let's spend the rest of our time here singing and worshiping God for uh, just how amazing that is. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for today. Thank you for the gospel according to Acts 4, 1 to 22. Pray, Father, for our church uh, here. And um, actually, just this next little bit of time together as we sort of eat that whole idea, as we nourish ourselves on the gospel and the body and blood of Jesus Christ, uh, may we be that truly nourished um, no matter how we feel about it, God, may there be thankfulness still in our heart, knowing that this is it. This is what God offers, and it's amazing. That he loved me so much, he didn't withhold his one and only son, but gave him up that we might be set free. In Christ we pray, amen.